Welcome to Leader Talk, a podcast in which we talk to leaders of deeper learning schools. Most of our guests are principals who lead schools that focus on critical thinking, problem solving, and depth of understanding. Students in these deeper learning schools typically have much greater student agency, voice, and choice than you would see in a more traditional school, and they often engage in more authentic, real-world work that makes an impact in the communities around them. The goal of Leader Talk is to make explicit the concrete, tangible leadership behaviors and organizational support structures that foster students' deeper learning opportunities. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Greetings, Leader Talk listeners. My name is Scott McLeod. I'm a professor of educational leadership at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm the founding director of CASTLE, C-A-S-T-L-E, the first university center in the United States that's focused on leadership and deeper learning, technology, and innovation. Today, my guest on Leader Talk is Brenda Diaz, the executive principal of the Nashville Big Picture High School in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Brenda. Hello, how are you? Doing great, thanks. Um, Brenda, let's just dive right in. Let's start with the basics. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your school and its learning model, the students and families that you serve. Okay. Well, um, I'm Brenda Diaz, um, and I like to always say that I have the awesome opportunity to serve as the uh, principal of the kindest, most passionate school in all of Metro Nashville Public Schools, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I have been uh, in education now for almost 28 years. very traditional background uh, is in education as an English teacher in high school, then had an opportunity to coach uh, teachers for a few years and moved into assistant principal positions. And I've now served in in the role of school leader for the past 10 years um, at uh, different schools. So, but I've been at my current school now for six years. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's my, kind of leadership journey to this role of, I like to say, lead teacher in the building. Um, uh, Primarily been in urban settings. um, So very rewarding to to work with uh, diverse student populations. Brenda, you left out that you are principal of the year for the Big Picture Learning Network. (laughs) Well, uh, I did leave that out, uh, which is really a highlight for me. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a modest Southern girl, so I don't like to toot my own horn uh, too often, but appreciate you for, 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 for uh, recognizing that honor. I am so humbled by that, um, to be selected among my peers to represent such a, um, I guess, well-qualified, passionate group of leaders uh, with the Big Picture Learning Network, the international organization. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just geeked over that. And sometimes I still pinch myself like, wow, that, that really happened. That really happened. So yes, thank you. <laughs> well, of course. And of course, we want our leader talk guests to know that we've got you know quality folks on. Uh-huh. <laughs> So we're going to unpack your leadership a little bit in just a minute. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, the learning model of Big Picture High School and the students and families that you serve. Well, as we mentioned, we're Nashville Big Picture uh, High School, and we are a school that was founded in 2007 in Nashville. Um, We are actually one of the first schools in the South that adopted the Big Picture Learning uh, school design. Um, And that simply means that our school embraces relationships, rigor, and relevance, but 
what our claim to fame is not just the relationships with the advisory uh, design that we do with our students, but also real world learning where our students actually go into the community twice a week Tuesday and Thursday, and they have an opportunity to pursue their interests and passions through an internship that is student-led and driven by them um, and, and really get a chance to decide if this is something they want to pursue beyond um, high school by going into college or other uh, post-secondary opportunities. Uh, but also what is unique about our school is our advisory model or our advisory program. Our students get to stay with their advisor anywhere from two to four years uh, uh, with their grade level. And that advisor pretty much becomes their, their person, their advocate in the building. And they stay with a cohort of students, about 15 students throughout the four years of their uh, high school um, experience. And that really builds relationships. And we really get to know our kids, get to know their families. We say we, we don't just enroll students, we enroll families. So very personalized learning is what we do. We try to, uh, the founder of Big Picture, uh, Elliot Wash, always say that the student is the curriculum. So we really believe that, that we try to figure out what is it that drives the student? What is there that oof that makes them want to keep coming to school every day? And once we find that out, that's what we try to put front and center for that kid. Nice. Brenda, basic demographics on your school? So basically, we have about 145 students this year. Um, our student population, we have about 70, 75% African American, 12% Hispanic. Um, students from economically disadvantaged communities, uh, we have about 35%. Um, our students who are exceptional educated students, um, we have about 22, 22% of our students who um, who uh, require services through an IEP. So yeah, very diverse. We don't pick and choose kids. We say that they choose us and we choose them. Uh, we are a school that is an, on the optional school platform with the district. We are a district school. So we have to adhere to all of the state requirements and all of those checklists and compliance issues that uh, any other public school has to uh, follow. Very nice. Brenda, tell our folks a little bit about what advisory looks like in a big picture school. I'm guessing that you're not purchasing some advisory curriculum from some vendor. No, um, as I said, it's very personalized, but we do have some basic principles or um, I guess you could say components that, that happen in all of our advisories. So basically advisory meets every morning at the top of the morning for all of our students. Um, in that space, students begin the morning with check-ins, a morning circle, what we like to call a pick-me-up. Some schools, they may call them icebreakers, but we do a pick-me-up in advisory. But at the heart of the advisory is about getting to know that student. They explore different topics each year. Uh, like in ninth grade, they do a major, major dive into who am I? That is the primary focus of what they do in ninth grade. As they move into 10th grade, they begin to look more into their ideas around service learning and what it is they want to do to uh, branch out into the community and help others. Um, in 11th and 12th grade, it's all about the senior capstone project. 
um, as they get ready to do a major event uh, in their senior year to uh, jumpstart their work into college, uh, the community, and also through that, that, that capstone project. But also in the center of that is their internship. Their advisor is like their case manager in a sense where they are doing rigorous projects that's connected to their internship. And the advisory is, is where that vehicle that holds that, that, that project and makes sure that the students are showing up at their internships. The mentor who is that business partner working with the students uh, is taken care of and that they get what they need to partner with us so that that kid is successful. Um, so pretty much advisory is like, a, as a lot of the kids say, is their home away from home. And they have peers that they really treat like family. On Fridays in advisory, we call it Family Fridays. So it's not uncommon to have birthday celebrations, to have pizza parties, um, uh, just chill days where they may be watching a movie or uh, just circling up and, and dealing with some things that they need to address in their advisory. So that happens on Fridays in all of our advisory. So it's just a place that the kids really enjoy being at. And as a principal, when I need to know something about a kid, I start with the advisor. I expect that advisor to advocate for that student and to let me know what it is that I'm missing, the why. So if a student is not coming to school or if the kid is tardy or if the kid is not meeting academic uh, requirements, or if the kid is not looking like themselves in the morning when we greet them, I go to the advisor and I want them to tell me what is it that I'm missing um, and how can we help uh, the why and what can we do to make sure that uh, the student is successful in our community. So Brenda, that's a really powerful advisory model. And, and I know that you all are a smaller school and that helps mm -hmm. with relationships and understanding kids and families. I guess I'm also wondering if you think that model is scalable to a traditional comprehensive high school. Most definitely. Um, that is one of the things that I, I know Big Picture Learning does well. But in my background, before I came to Big Picture, I worked at a large traditional high school and we were definitely experiencing with the advisory uh, design. So it is definitely scalable. It's just about the adults being willing to be vulnerable to uh, create routines and practices where they prioritize relationships with kids. And relationships are designed uh, around trust. And you can't build trust if I don't spend time with you, if I'm not uh, uh, kind of in your space constantly or communicating with you. So that advisory design allows that to happen. So yeah, it is definitely a scalable uh, practice that I, I, I feel strongly about and have seen the results of what happens. And what's so unique about the advisory design, our kids come back and they are always connecting with their advisor and the mentor in the community uh, and building that social capital. So it's not uncommon when uh, graduates come back to our building, they're like, is Mr. So-and-so still there? I need to go see my advisor. Or they are, I mean, they are on social media together. They they share events together, weddings together, uh, disappointments together. So our advisors are really in it with that child. And, and our, our mission is uh, pursuing your passions to college and beyond. So that beyond is definitely the data point that we really, really follow to see that our kids are doing well. And that's because a lot of the work that we do with advisory. Brenda, that's phenomenal. Um, 
I am talking with principals on the Leader Talk podcast of schools where kids do really cool stuff. Um, what are some cool things that your students do? What are some examples that really illustrate the power of your school? Woo, my kids blow me away every quarter, Scott. And um, we have what are called quarterly exhibitions. And I told you that one of the uh, main focus of the internship are quality projects. We have students working at architectural firms. We have students who are working at the juvenile center or the um, juvenile justice center downtown. We have students working at Red Cross where they sponsor and organize blood drives where they are actually going into the courtroom, working with the district attorneys and, and working with other interns who are college students and, and helping them do research and briefs. We have students designing buildings at the, oh, those architectural firms and creating models using all type of software. We have one senior who is actually working with an ear, nose and uh, throat doctor where she goes into the operating room and then we have one student who actually works at a funeral home and her highlight of her day is, and I know this sounds gory, but learning about cremation and the crematorium and, and sharing and the connection she's made with her mentor, he's actually going to uh, pay for her future uh, studies and has guaranteed her a position in his business. So got one kid who works at a, a mechanic shop where he's like pimped his ride and that that is his capstone where he's done the painting and he and his mentor is also paying for industry certifications so i could go on and on about the cool things our students are not only doing in the classroom you know the standardized tests and all of those things that's that's so boring but those real world learning things that they're doing every day from nail salons where they are you're like giving me pointers on how i can you know up my game with my nail art uh uh they're running their own businesses with uh braiding uh with graphic design and t-shirts I told a student the other day that I don't own a, ho a hoodie and I need to really step up my game for the culture because I never purchased a hoodie. And I'm ashamed to say that as an African-American woman, I don't own a hoodie, but I'm going to purchase my first hoodie from this student on next week. So she's, she's going to help me get a little bit more hip um, because I just have not done that well. And my own daughters say, oh, mom, you, what, what's happening to you? You don't own a hoodie. But that is something that I am excited about. I know, really, that is like a high point that I can't wait till I return to the school to get my first hoodie. And, and it's coming from a student. So those are the kinds of things that, that our kids are doing that are just cool. So yeah, I could go on and on about it. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, Brenda, what does learning look like when they're not in their internships? Is it pretty traditional? Is it worksheets and textbooks? Is it something else? It's traditional in the sense that Monday and Wednesday and Friday are class periods, what we call workshops, but it's not worksheets and uh, those kinds of things. Our, everything we do is really about relevance for our kids. So we are really into projects um, and students really drive their learning by having menus of options that they can demonstrate their learning. Um, they are, they, we do follow the standard curriculum where students uh, really kind of self-monitor 
We use a learning platform where all the coursework is uploaded um, on a platform we use uh, called Schoology. And this really came from the COVID experience. And so we continued with all advisors, we call our teachers advisors, um, where they upload all of the coursework for the quarter. And, um, and students can work at their own pace. So even when an advisor is out of school, if we get a sub or don't get a sub, the students can still work with, uh, independently and be able to do that work. Um, so it, it is, there are some traditional aspects of it, but then there are so many different ways that we uh, personalize the learning so students can go at their own pace and we differentiate based on their learning needs and how they learn best. Gotcha. Brenda, so learning looks a little different there. I'm guessing that you also have some organizational structures and some support structures for students and staff that look a little different maybe from the traditional school down the road. <laughs> what do you have in place that really enables the kind of learning that you really wanna see? What kind of systems and processes do you have? Well, one thing is that we really do believe in being proactive about making sure that first of all, all students are, are being provided with equitable tier one instruction in their classrooms. So that's number one, that all of our advisors are, are, are prepared and providing students with that. Um, one thing that we do is that all students um, also provide uh, are provided interventions. And those interventions happen on uh, every day of the week where they have about 45 minutes of intervention to help them with any gaps that they have. Okay, but you're defining tier one instruction very differently from the way a lot of schools define tier one instruction, which because mm -hmm. a lot of schools are defining tier one as that traditional teacher directed transmit information, students regurgitate it, right? And then if they're not successful in that model, then we do something a little different from tier two. I don't think that's quite what you're talking about here. No, well, we look at tier one being that it is about what is being taught to students. Is it on grade level? So we focus on grade level content. What should a 10th grade students in ELA be able to do in this class? So that's how we look at tier one instruction. Now the how, how it is delivered is then how we look at project-based learning, how we differentiate the learning. So the what in our opinion is, is grade level content. All students should have access to that. Then tier two and tier three then is where we begin to intervene. Those students who are not able to access that tier one because of different learning deficits or gaps that they may have. And we do that through our intervention design program where we have, we utilize instructional technology like uh, iReady, we may use Lexia Power Up. Um, we even do that also with ACT where we use Mastery Prep. So that is personalized based on what students do with our universal screeners. And we decide, oh, okay, this student needs to go to this uh, intervention based on what they did on that uh, universal screener that we get. We use FastBridge for our universal screeners. Got it. And I think that's a really important distinction because what you've basically just said here is that every student as their tier one model of learning is getting access to rich, robust inquiry and project-based learning Right. And yes. then if they need some additional supports on the side to help them be successful in that modality, then you have some other structures in place, which is very different right. from a lot of schools where they say, oh, most kids are going to be immersed in this more traditional model of schooling or 
only some kids get to do project and inquiry based learning, the ones who are already academically successful because the other ones need, you know, interventions, whatever. So it's a very different approach in terms of who gets access to really robust learning modalities. Yeah, well, again, to me, it's about equity, right? So how can we expect students to achieve at higher levels or we say we believe that all students can be successful if we are never providing them with the opportunities. So to me, that's just, um, I could not, I, I wouldn't want my, my own ch children to be in a classroom where they are being taught below what they need to be successful when they leave uh, high school. So to me, it's about having options, college and beyond. So whether you go to a college or a two-year college or you go straight into the world of work, I need you to be prepared to access whatever is given to you so that you can succeed in those fields. And what we notice is that when students are in their internship programs, they make connections as to why that tier one instruction is so relevant because I am having to write a brief or do a marketing plan or communicate with people on different levels or sit in a meeting, do a PowerPoint. And if they're not able to do that because we are, I hate to use this word, dumbing down the curriculum or not providing them with equitable uh, instruction, then we're not doing our jobs. And it's, it's really an, in, an injustice on the highest form, in my opinion. No argument here. <laughs> Um, so, Brenda, you've talked about advisories, you've talked about internships, you've talked about project-based learning as a tier one uh, modality of learning. Um, those all dovetail together very nicely, and I kind of interrupted sort of your response to my question. Any other key organizational or support structures or processes or systems that you think are really driving you forward? Well, one of the things that we also uh, do well is that we really support our students' social-emotional learning. Um, because we know that if students are not feeling that they are cared for and loved, then everything else that we put in place does not matter. So we are very in tune with trauma-informed practices, uh, having restorative practices in our building, and not only for our students, but also for the adults, because hurt adults hurt children, right? So we want to make sure that we have loving, caring adults and supporting them with what they need in order so they can deliver and create these environments in their classrooms and throughout our building. So we, we spend a lot of times with making sure we have resources like uh, human resources, like a social worker, a, a restorative practice assistance, uh, having counselors who do the work of counseling, right? Um, um, and, and just really meeting students at their point of needs and, giving, and making it okay for them to say is I'm not okay. So if they need to, to be away from the classroom and just take care of what they need for those social, emotional, mental health needs, then we provide those resources for them as well. But we also do that for our, our advisors and our, and our support team. And then we also support our teachers with a lot of uh, PD that is um, personalized. Um, our personal learning communities don't look like a lot of sit and get. Actually, our teachers lead that from their data by saying what students are able to do and what students are not able to do and how can we be collaborative and figuring that out. Um, and we also provide a lot of self-care for our advisors. Last week, we did a day in one of the, in the local parks where our teachers spent half the day doing yoga and just learning that it's okay to rest. 
So, I mean, that was a PD, and, and this is what got me. A lot of our teachers walked away saying to me, this is one of the best PDs we had. And I'm like, uh, we didn't really work today. You all, it was really a chill day, but that's telling that to be able to give that to our advisors and, and be able to prioritize that it's okay to take care of yourself and giving them the tools on knowing how to do that is how we also prioritize our trauma-informed practices and being restorative. So we do a lot of work around social-emotional learning for our for our uh, students and our team members. Very nice. Brenda, you're leading a very complex school here. You've got a lot of moving parts. Mm. What are the things that you do personally as a school leader to keep the kind of learning and teaching uh, happening that you want to see, uh, particularly things that you might do that might be different, again, from the principal of the school down the road? Well, one thing that I, I, I try to do is, first of all, is always show up and, and be my authentic self. Uh, I, I I don't like a lot of, of hypocrisy around me. So I try to be who I am in all spaces where people can really know, okay, this is just who Dr. Brenda is. So I try to, if I'm not doing well on something, I like to say, hey, I didn't do that very well, guys. Um, and, I, and I'm the first to give myself grace and to extend grace. So that's one thing that I try to do. Another thing is like, I try to take time for myself by learning. Uh, like right now I'm at a conference this week in Houston and giving myself permission to say, let me learn about that. So developing a team of people who can continue the work within my absence so that I can refill my cup and learn is important. Um, so I try to do that on a regular. There are a couple of things that I don't miss. I don't miss the BPL leadership conference in December every year. Um, and like now I'm at a trauma-informed uh, schools conference in Houston. Um, I, and then also I try to pour into other leaders because I think that is important for me as a, a leader that I um, am not just a leader, but I'm also developing other leaders. That is to me, the highest form of success that other people that are, that I am mentoring are also moving towards their visions and their dreams of becoming a leader. So that's like my personal thing. Do I know other people who are saying they're a leader because of something that I've given to them? So those are things that I do uh, to, and then I also just try to make myself very accessible to my kids at school. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to tell um, our students and my team members, hey, I love you. Um, I don't, I'm not, a sh not shy of saying that to, to the people that I care and the people that I lead, because I want them to know that I'm always coming from a place of love and a place of care. So even if it's a hard decision that, that we may disagree on, I'm not trying to harm you. Um, so I think those are some of the things that I, that I might do differently than some other leaders. Gotcha. On the instructional side, because you're sort of a project-based <clears throat> school, what does instructional leadership look like from you? Well, we do a lot of modeling, um, very hands-on. I am constantly in the classrooms looking for best practices and, and, and areas where I can uh, figure out which member in our team can either lift that practice up. So we do a lot of distributive leadership. Uh, I don't think I'm the expert of, in everything. 
So I have a team of people and also the teachers in our building that we lift up their successes and share it with others. So that is one of the ways that we're constantly walking through the building, constantly sitting in classrooms. And then we also just listen to our kids. We do a lot of student voice sessions. If you want to know what's working and what's not working, talk to the kids and make yourself vulnerable to what their needs are because that's who we're serving. So um, those are some of the things that I think about when I think about instruction is really knowing what's happening in the classrooms and, and giving teachers the ability to know that you trust them to be professionals. So I we do what are called wish lists. What are some of the things you wish for? And if I can get it, I get it. If I can't, I'll let them know why are we going to have to do it next year. So I prioritize our budget based on what the teachers and what the students and parents are saying that are needed and not necessarily what my dreams are, but how that aligns with the school vision and what those uh, individuals need in order to do their best work. Very nice. And I think I got time for one more question here. Um, okay. This is also great. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we got a number of school leaders who are starting to think about deeper learning. They're starting to tiptoe in the directions of inquiry and project-based and some mm. You know, new pathways for high school kids and, and so on. What are some tips and strategies strategies that you have for those folks who want to maybe start moving in some of these directions? I think the best tip I can give any leader who, especially if they're in a traditional school in a school district that is driven by test data, um, is to be okay with taking risks um, and being courageous in what you're doing because it's what's in the best interest of kids. Kids want to be highly involved and engaged. So when you talk about projects, find out what your kids like to do. I think COVID taught us that when they were not in the building, our kids were learning how to do podcasts. They were learning how to cook. They were learning. So when people think about, you know, we got this new phrase, learning loss. I, I call BS on that one, Scott, because our kids were not, they were, they were learning. They were learning and they were teaching each other and they were innovating. Uh, they were they were developing businesses. They were working, especially high school kids. They took on a lot of the jobs that a lot of people didn't want anymore. They were taking care of their siblings. They were teaching their siblings. They were helping with homework. They were helping their parents. So I don't buy into this concept of learning loss. What we lost was our power of the schoolhouse and that everything beyond the school became very important. And that's what we don't want to lose. We want to continue to embrace school without walls. So if you are a leader looking to go into deeper learning, look beyond your school walls. Look into your community with your business partners because they have so much knowledge on how to get kids to college and beyond. And our kids want to engage with them. They want to, they, they got dreams and hopes. So find out what their interests are and bring those learnings into your classroom. That's your hook. You know, that's your hook to get them to learn why writing an essay is important or why delivering a speech is important or why you need to know your history. You know, that, or why you need to know how to look at uh, different technologies to present things. This is how you get them engaged in those kinds of things, connecting them to the real world and what their interests are. And, and just be brave and bold and just take those steps. And then find the teachers in your building 
who are already interested in a lot of the things you want to do and let them lead the work. Sometimes you have to lead from, from, uh, from I, I hate to say the bottom up, but from your, your peers. And it doesn't always start in your office. It starts with some of our best work has come from teachers who are passionate about the work. And so then they become the ones who lead the work. And then you become the one that, that helped them facilitate that and get them the resources they need to do things that they're passionate about. Brenda, you are so fantastic. Thank you. Oh. Um, thanks so much for taking some time away from your conference for this conversation. Um, I'm really appreciative of your willingness to come chat with me on Leader Talk. I'll share some additional resources for our listeners in the show notes. Okay. Um, but, you know, hey, thanks. Be well. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Scott, and you have a good day, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leader Talk. All episodes and show notes are available at leadertalk.org, and the podcast is available at most major podcast hosting sites. If you have guest ideas for us, let Scott know. Thanks.